Okay, Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord has sworn an oath to David. In truth, he will not break it. A son, the fruit of your body, will I set upon your throne. If your children keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their children will sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion, and he has desired her for his habitation. This shall be my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I delight in her. I will surely bless her provisions and satisfy her poor with bread. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will rejoice and sing. There will I make the horn of David flourish. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. As for his enemies, I will clothe them with shame. But as for him, his crown will shine. Let's pray. Lord, as I reach out through these words to the people that are in this room and that are watching online, God, would it not be me reaching, but would it be you reaching? As we celebrate Christmas, would you remind us, Lord, that we're not just celebrating the birth of a child, we're celebrating the birth of a king. And it's not just a cute story, God, but it is a, a new world government being established through a new king who is good and who is worthy and who is uh, powerful and who is kind. Lord, with this holiday season, we remember that it's not about a man in a red suit, and it's not about presents around a tree, and it's not about even gathering with family. Lord, that it's about you, and it's about those nails that would pierce your hands and that spear that would pierce your side. Help us stay focused, Lord, on the reason that we celebrate this holiday. Help me today to communicate that reason. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Seventeen hundred years before the birth of Jesus, almost four thousand years ago, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. He called Abraham out of a life of sin and out of idolatry, and he said, "If you'll follow me, if you'll go where I tell you to go, and if you'll enter into a covenant with me, I'm going to make you a promise. I promise you that through uh, your descendants, kings will be born." Uh, that you will be the father of many kings, that a great nation would emerge from your children. And through the children of Abraham, God promised that the entire earth would be blessed, that the entire earth, all of humanity would be saved and delivered from their sins. Look at Genesis chapter 12. He says, go from your country. This is God speaking to Abraham very first book of the Bible. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God told Abraham in Genesis 17, just a few chapters later, he said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Remember, Abraham was in his 70s, 80s, and 90s when God gave him this promise and had not had children yet. He said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generation 
for an everlasting covenant. God, 4,000 years ago, 1,700 years before Jesus was born, calls Abraham out of a life of sin, out of a life of idolatry, worshiping false gods, and he says, if you'll make a covenant with me, and if you'll walk with me, your children will be kings. I will establish a kingdom in your name. And and that kingdom will be eternal. It will last forever. And it won't just be a kingdom for your benefit or for your family's benefit. But through your kingdom, I will save all of the entire world, all of humanity through your family, through the kings that come from your descendants. That's how I'm going to establish a a new kingdom. And that's how I'm going to establish salvation for all humanity. If you fast forward from Abraham to uh, 700 years later, Abraham's descendants have been through already a 400-year period of slavery in Egypt. They've been set free by God and led by Moses out of Egypt. They've established a new kingdom in the promised land that God had always promised them. And then by this time, 700 years after uh, after Dave, or excuse me, after Abraham, the greatest human king that Israel ever had, King David, was seated on the throne. So 1,000 years before Jesus was born, 700 years after Abraham was received a promise from God, King David was seated on the throne and God gave King David a promise. He told King David, he said that one of your descendants will forever sit on the throne of Israel. Just after David was anointed king, God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. He says to David, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the problem was that it wasn't very many years after David died that the whole kingdom that David had established and brought to such prosperity had... uh, been utterly destroyed. Really, within two generations, the kingdom had split into two different kingdoms. There was civil war among the among the, the people of Israel. They weren't in agreement. They weren't serving God. They weren't worshiping the God that Abraham made the covenant with, and they weren't worshiping the God that David had made a covenant with, and they had drifted into worshiping idols and, and letting things into their lives and influences into their lives that weren't God's plan for their life. And so the kingdom had become shaken and destroyed. And just a few generations, the kings of Israel, who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the entire nation, those kings had begun to worship idols and marry women who didn't worship the same God. And they abandoned the God of their father, David, and their father, Abraham. The people of Israel, as a result of their sin and as a result of their breaking covenant with God, eventually they were invaded by the Assyrian Empire. And then they were invaded by the Babylonian Empire. And then they were hauled off into captivity. We talked about this last week in the psalm. They were hauled off into captivity for 70 years uh, in the Babylonian Empire. And they were removed from their home. And then after they returned, we know the story they returned, but then the Greeks came. And the Greeks occupied their land. And then the Romans came. And the Romans set up a false king, a puppet king, to sit on David's throne, but it wasn't the king that God had anointed for Israel. So by the time Jesus was born, for hundreds of years, a true king of Israel hadn't been on the throne. And for hundreds of years, Israel hadn't been allowed to govern themselves, and they had been 
uh, oppressed by larger, more wealthy, and more powerful empires. People of Israel, they lived by the time Jesus was born under a military occupation in a police state. And for hundreds of years, the people had been praying for a Messiah to come and deliver them, to restore the throne of David, to restore uh, their own kingdom, and to deliver them from these evil, oppressive, ungodly uh, empires that were, that were oppressing them. They prayed for a Messiah. They prayed for a Savior. They envisioned a day when God would send them a new king to restore the kingdom and sit on the throne of David. They took by faith God's promise seriously. Your throne will be established forever. Even though they didn't see it, they still believed it. Even though there wasn't a king on the throne, they believed that God would keep his word and that he would put a king on the throne, right? Now, fast forward 300 years later after David. The kingdom's in shambles. People repeatedly turned to worshiping idols and and sinful lifestyles. The people had been subjected to war and poverty and military occupation and political oppression. And God begins to speak through uh, men uh, known as prophets. And he begins to speak through these prophets to his people. And he begins to give the prophets a promise of a coming savior who would restore the throne of King David and set his people free. There's a familiar passage in Isaiah, the the prophet Isaiah, where God spoke of a day when a new king would be born. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You know this. We've heard it every Christmas our entire lives. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, that, that passage of scripture wasn't written when Jesus was born. That passage of scripture was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. They were waiting for this promise from God to be fulfilled. At the time of, from Isaiah until the time of Jesus' birth, there were still hundreds of years of waiting. There are words written, these are words written six or seven hundred years before the birth of Christ. But the people by faith believed the promise that one day someone would come to finally set them free. And that's the story of the psalm that we're reading today, Psalm 132. It's another one of those psalms of ascent that we read about last week and we talked about last week. It's the the psalms that they would sing uh, three times a year as they would make their pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. And they would sing those songs like, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And they would sing and they would invite people to go on the journey and the pilgrimage with them to go into God's presence and worship God at the temple. And Psalm 132 is another one of those songs that they would sing as they traveled to the temple to worship God. And it starts off like this. Lord, remember David and all the hardships that he endured. Lord, remember King David. So think about it. For hundreds of years, they're still going to the temple to worship God three times a year. And they're singing about the promise that God had given David, but there's no king on the throne. For hundreds of years, they're singing the song, Lord, remember your promise you made to David. 
that there would be a king on his throne for eternity. They're speaking something that hasn't happened yet. They're speaking something that hasn't, uh, that's, that's not reality yet. They're reminding themselves and they're reminding God, God, you promised that we would forever have a king seated on our throne. We haven't had a king for hundreds of years, but three times a year when they go to worship, they say, God, remember you promised. You remember you promised that you would restore David's throne and that there would be a king seated on the throne of, of Israel forever. Remember, God. Can I tell you that sometimes when you're waiting for God to answer, we give up too easily in what we're praying for? We'll say, you know, I prayed, nothing happened, so God must have forgotten. Well, you haven't prayed for hundreds of years yet. Some of you, you give up praying after a, a day or two. Well, God didn't answer, and so, well, God must not be real. But God has a perfect timing for everything that he wants to allow into your life. He has a perfect timing and plan and purpose. And just because you're not seeing with your, your physical eyes what's happening or that anything's happening doesn't mean that there's not something happening in the spiritual realm that's in direct response to your prayers and it's working on your behalf. Don't stop praying just because you haven't seen it yet. In fact, when you haven't seen it yet, that's just when you just keep praying and you keep pressing in and you keep looking for. They didn't, they didn't sing this song when you're there going to the temple to worship God and they said, you know what, uh, the, the, all our kings are dead and we've got the Romans, they're taking over and they're the ones that are running things now and we're just never going to have it again. And so we'll, we'll, one time we'll go to the temple and we'll sing this song, say, God, remember Remember what you, what you promised us. And then when they, nothing happened, they didn't say, well, next year, we're just not going to do it. You know, God didn't answer on our timetable, so we're not going to go. We're not going to do it. They start off, they say, God, that for hundreds of years, they're praying this prayer. God, remember David and the hardships he endured. It's a reminder that David spent his life making sure that the nation had the materials they need to build the temple, a dwelling place for God in their midst. It was David's life mission that he never got to see fulfilled in his lifetime. He saved up all the money and all the materials to build the temple, but he never saw the temple built. His son Solomon built the temple. But they're saying, remember all that David did for you. God, to, to provide this beautiful, wonderful temple, this place for you in our midst. And so the scene is they're traveling up the road to the mountaintop. They say, remember, he spent his entire life looking forward to the day, God, when there would be a temple here on earth when God would dwell with his people. But now a thousand years later, this grand temple that was built for God, it had been destroyed and rebuilt a couple of times. The city of Jerusalem, the city of date that David had built for God, it had spent centuries in violent warfare, had been through several cycles of spiritual revival, but then backsliding. You know what? That's a metaphor for some people's lives right there, that we've been spent decades in spiritual warfare and battling demons that are in our past. And we've spent decades, uh, you know, oh, we'll go to the altar and we'll live for God. God for a little bit, but then we backslide. And then we go and we start living for God a little bit, but then we backslide and we mess up. And we go through this over and over and over again. And it's a metaphor, see, that God's saying, you know what? Remember the promise. Even when you're not faithful, he's faithful. Even when you go through that cycle of faithfulness and backsliding, he's never backslid. He has never backslid on his promises. He has never forgotten his promises. And he's still 
faithful. In verse 10 of the song, though, there's a, still a, there's a prayer. They sing, God, I know you've been, uh, that we've been unfaithful and that we've drifted from you, but not for us, but look at verse 10, but for David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. If you ever look in the Bible, and maybe your translation has a different word here for anointed, but you'll notice that it's a capital A. And if you look in your Bible, if you ever see that word anointed in a capital A, that is the Hebrew word Messiah. That is, that is the, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the Savior. It's talking about the Christ. Lord, not because we're faithful, but because you're faithful to the promise you made David. Would you not turn away your Messiah from us in our hour of need? See, God didn't wait for you to be faithful before he sent you a Savior. Hallelujah. He didn't wait for you to quit sinning before he'd send you a Savior. He didn't wait for you to get your life together before he would send someone to save you. No, he saw us in our mess, in our sin, in our issues, in our cycle of faithfulness and backsliding, faithfulness and backsliding. He saw us in our, in our violent world that we're in, a world full of sin and all kinds of evil, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to turn my face away from you. I'm going to send you. Remember the first week we talked about the face of God as being the glory or the presence of God. He's saying, God, don't withhold the presence of the anointed, the Savior, the Messiah from us, even when we've been unfaithful, because you made a promise to David. And even we're we're unfaithful to the promise. You're always faithful to the promise. I know we haven't been faithful to you, but remember, God, that 1,700 years ago, you made a promise to Abraham that kings would come through his, uh, through his descendants, and these kings would offer salvation and blessing and grace to the entire world. And God, would you remember that 700 years ago, you promised us through Isaiah that you would send us a king that wasn't just any old run-of-the-mill king, but he would be a divine king, that God himself would rule from the throne of Israel as a wonderful counselor, as a mighty God, and as as an everlasting father. And the first verse I read today, verse 11 says, the Lord has sworn an oath to David and in truth, he will not break it. Aren't you glad that God never breaks his promises? He never breaks his promises. He always keeps his promises. We need a king and God will deliver on his promise to give us a king that he has been promising since the days of Abraham 4,000 years ago. Now, the thing about God's promises is that God's promises often come in unexpected packages. I I heard a, a preacher just a few days ago. He was saying God gives excellent gifts, but he's a horrible gift wrapper. And he said, I heard this preacher saying, you know, so if you if he he'll give you the gift of patience, but he'll wrap it in the form of a three year old. Right? God always keeps his promises, but he never gives them quite the way we expect. He always kind of defies our expectations and gives it. So for hundreds of years, the the people of Israel, they're praying for a king. And so you and I, when we think of when a king is born or when royalty is born, they're born in a palace. They're born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they're born with, with great... Uh, uh, celebration, and they're born with uh, uh, media attention. You know, if uh, if if Prince William has another son, and over in over in the 
in England in the next few years or whatever, there's going to be a, they'll pay millions of dollars for pictures of that child. And that child will be born in all kinds of luxury and have the best medical care and have the best housing and have the best uh, clothing and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's what we think of when we think of a king being born. And then they, they were praying for a king who would come and, uh, I'm sorry to say something that was maybe a little crude for church, but he would come in and um, kick some people out of Israel. And he would come and say, hey, I'm taking over, and the Romans, you got to leave, and, and the Greeks, you've got to leave, and, and hey, I'm going to clear house, and I'm going I'm I'm to be a military leader. And they're, they're wanting God to come through and smite the Romans. They're wanting God to come through and to, to destroy the Romans that are occupying them. They're, they're wanting a military dictator to come in and set things right for Israel. But instead, God sends a baby, not born in a palace, but born in a cave in the backside of the hill country of Israel. There's no, no, uh, no fanfare. There's no, there's, there's no media attention. There's nothing like that. And then he grows up, and he's not a fighter at all. He's a carpenter. He's a preacher. He's, he's, he talks about love and mercy and forgiveness and, and those kinds of things. He doesn't talk about drawing a sword and fighting for, for your freedom. He goes a totally different route because God will keep his promise for a king, but he's going to fulfill that promise in an unexpected package. Can I, can I tell you that sometimes um, we put expectations on Jesus that are ours, but they're not biblical or scriptural? You know, and that we, 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 put a, we make our laundry list of prayers and God, would you give us this, this, and that? But, but really, God's on a totally different wavelength than you. You know, God, would you fix my husband? Well, he's going to keep his promise to take care of your marriage, but he's going to fix you first. Maybe that's, maybe that's what's really going on. You know, well, they're, they're wrong. Well, actually, he's going to start working on you first. He's going to start working on your heart first. He's going to fulfill his promise, but it's going to come in ways you didn't expect. God always keeps his promises, but his, often come, his promises often come in unexpected ways. But listen to this. God's promises always exceed our expectations. You know, we, we tell people, people tell them leadership, you go to leadership training and that kind of thing, and you're, you're trying to be a better leader. They'll always tell you to under-promise and then over-deliver. You know, don't promise too big and then not be able to deliver on what you promise. God always over-promises and over-delivers. He always exceeds our expectations. Even the best promises that he offers, even the best things and the best blessings he promises us, he always will do exceedingly, exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. See, he promised a king, and we're expecting a king to come and to kick butt and take names and take over, and we're expecting him to do all this, and, but, and, and that's what we're expecting. And normal kings... Normal kings that we would expect when we say, send us a king. Normal kings are far off and distant. You and I would never meet the king. You know, we're just average people. We're not, we're not close. Normal kings are untouchable. You, you can't go up and just have a conversation with them. You can't go and hug them. When, normal kings, they win their thrones through violence and warfare. There is no king that has ever sat on a throne that hasn't had somewhere, sometime in the, in the journey leading to the throne that he didn't kill somebody or someone in his family did. Never. 
The only way you become a king is you have to kill somebody who's already on the throne so you can become the king. Every other king will establish his throne through violence and warfare. Every other king takes advantage of the poor and the disadvantaged to live in their life of luxury. Every other, that's what a normal king would do, but God promises a different kind of king. He promises a different kind. This king that he promises is no ordinary human. He is always, God has always desired to dwell with his people. He's never wanted to be untouchable to his people. He's always wanted to be up close and personal with his people. He has always, since Adam and Eve sinned, he wanted to restore a relationship that Adam and Eve had where it said they walked with God in the cool of the day every day, where you could walk with him and be close and, and, and tangible and have a true relationship with him. He's not an ordinary king. He wants to dwell with his people. He doesn't want to be in some far-off palace with gates and, and locks, locked doors between him and his people. He wants to be intimately involved with his people. So what did God do? He did it through Jesus, who was fully God and fully human. And he is a different kind of king than anyone has ever seen before. And that's what the rest of Psalm 132 is all about. Look at uh, verse 16, where it says, uh, uh, his priests, I will clothe with salvation. I will, I will bring true, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I skipped one. I skip no, verse 15, excuse me. I will abundantly bless her provision. Speaking of Israel, speaking of the people of God, when the Messiah comes, he says, I will abundantly bless my people. So what kind of king is Jesus? He's a provider. He's a provider. Most kings you pay taxes to. Most kings, it's your job to fund him and take care of him, not our king. Not our king. Our king says, you know what? You follow me in covenant with me, I'll take care of every one of your needs. I will provide for you. The Bible says I've never seen the poor begging for bread. I've never seen the weary forsaken. I have never seen God forsake those who are in need. If you're walking in covenant with him, he will take care of you. He doesn't necessarily promise you a Cadillac or a Mercedes, but he does promise you that you, you will be provided for if you'll live in covenant with me. And if you'll live according to my kingdom, I'll be a provider for you. Every other king, we have, to, we have to pay the taxes to support his lifestyle. Instead, he, because of what he has done and who he is, the scripture says, my God shall provide all of your needs according to his riches and glory. We don't provide all of his need according to our riches. He provides all of our needs according to his riches. He's a different kind of king, right? In a day full of economic uncertainty and fear of the future, it is a comfort to know that we have a king who will provide for us. My provision doesn't come in a paycheck, and my provision doesn't come in an offering, and my provision doesn't come from a job, and my provision sure doesn't come from the government. My provision comes from the God who will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the taters underneath them. He owns it all, and it all belongs to him, and he's my king, and he will provide for me, and we've got to stop looking to man to be our provision, but instead start looking to our king who will provide our every need. We can fix a lot of political problems if we quit looking to the government to provide everything for us. And you could fix a lot of family problems if you would quit looking to your spouse to be your provider. If you would quit looking to your parents to be your provider. You could solve a lot of marriage problems if you'd start stop looking at that job that you're a workaholic at as your provider. Instead, look to Jesus as your provider. It will fix every problem in your economic life if you'll let him be king. 
He says he's a provider. He'll, he'll abundantly bless his people. The, the second half of verse 15 says he feeds the hungry and he cares for the poor. Not just the financially poor, the spiritually poor. You know, the Beatitudes in the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, when Jesus is speaking, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, we're all poor in spirit. You know what that's talking That's talking about your sin. That's talking about I don't have anything to offer God on my own. That, that, that spiritually, without Jesus, I am empty. He says, but blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be filled. See, because he cares for the spiritually empty and the spiritually poor and the spiritually corrupt and the spiritually bankrupt. Sin places us in a state of spiritual poverty. But Jesus, one of my favorite names that they called Jesus in the New Testament was Jesus, friend of sinners. He's my friend even when I'm still a sinner. He's reaching out to me and he's, he, he sees my spiritual depravity and my spiritual poverty and he sees my mess ups. He sees the mess ups that you know about and he sees the mess ups that nobody knows about, only me. And he sees them and he says, I still want to be your friend. And I want to care for you and your state of spiritual depravity and I'll make you rich spiritually where the world will make you poor. He cares for the poor and he feeds the hungry. The Beatitudes again say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. He's, he's the friend of the spiritually poor. Part of the reason that we have altars in church, they used to call them in the old days, they used to call these mourner's benches. They used to call them more. Why'd they call them that? Because people would come and they would actually weep and mourn over their sin. We've lost that in church a little bit. And I'm not just talking about the one that's out in the world sinning and, and just has a radical conversion transformation. I'm talking about people that served, have served Jesus for years, but we all mess up. We all, we all sin. We all fall short in some way or another. We're not supposed to. And he gives us the ability to overcome sin. And so if we do sin, it's our fault. But when's the last time you got broken over your sin? When's the last time you said, God, without you, I'm spiritually poor and I'm spiritually broke. And you mourned over your sin because it broke the heart of God. And you come to him mourning over your sin and he brings forgiveness and healing and, and he restores and, and he loves you in the midst of your sin. And you leave your sin there. You don't just say, I'm sorry, and then go back to it, but you leave it there. He says he feeds the hungry and cares for the poor, not just the financially poor, but the spiritually poor as well. Then the psalm says uh, he will bring salvation to his priests. You know, in the New Testament, we're all, if we're believers, called priests. It's not just, I'm not a priest. I'm not the priest and y'all aren't the priest. We're all priests, right? And he says, I'm going to bring salvation to my priests. He's always wanted a nation of priests, people who had direct connection with God, people who had direct communion with God, people who would intercede to God for the world around them. That's what a priest does. And he says, I will bring salvation to 
my priest. And he's always wanted us all to be priests. He wants full salvation. He brings full salvation to us. We, uh, they were expecting at that time salvation from political and economic oppression. Lord, would you save us from this wicked Roman empire that's taking over? Would you save us from these wicked Roman soldiers that are ruling our lives? Would you save us from the economics where we have to pay exorbitant taxes to the Roman empire for very little return? That's what they were praying. But he says, I'll save you from some oppression. For a political and economic oppression, but I want to do more than that. I want to offer you full salvation where just not, not just the external circumstances of your life are dealt with, but I want to save you inside and out. I want to give you a new heart and a new life, and I want to deliver you from sin and the power of sin, and I want to deliver you from death and the power of the grave and the power of hell. I want to deliver you and save you totally and completely. That's what he was talking about when he says, I want to give full salvation. I'm not just going to save you from your circumstances. I'm going to save you from yourself. I'm going to save you from your own sin. I'm going to save you from your own addictions, from whether you got yourself into it or somebody else got you into it. I want to save you wholly and completely. That's why when we talk about discipleship, it's not just about being forgiven. That's not what Christianity is just about. It's not just about being forgiven. It's then about after you're forgiven, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life for God where you never have to be a slave to the things that used to hold you back. We don't just believe in just a once saved, always saved. You come hit an altar, say the ABCs of salvation, and then you go about living the rest of your life however you want because you got your ticket to heaven. That's not how it works. That's not full salvation. That's some cheap fire insurance is what that is. But full salvation is when you hit that altar and you come up changed and you're different and you walk in it and you live in it for the rest of your life. And when something comes up that you realize you need to fix or deal with, you don't say, well, I've been forgiven and I can just keep on living however I want to, you say, no, that broke the heart of God that I still have that issue. And so I'm going to go back to this altar and I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to make sure not that you backslid and went to hell or we're going to go to hell over it, but just I've got an issue that's not completely surrendered over to God. And he's given me the power to surrender everything to him and live in full freedom and full salvation. That's what he's talking about. That's what he offers us. Not just cheap forgiveness, but, but forgiveness that means something because it means you never have to go back. For second half of that verse, he brings salvation to his priests and they will sing. What's it say? They will, uh, her saints will shout for joy. Our Savior, our King, he brings the fullness of joy. Joy is not just temporary happiness, but true joy. True joy that it doesn't matter what's going on around me because I have a covenant relationship with my creator. And I understand that anything that happens to me in this life, it by its very nature has to be temporary. But my, my eternal status is secure. You can have joy in the midst of heartbreak. You can have joy in the midst of disaster. You can have joy in the midst of that person dumping you or leaving you. You can have joy in the midst of, of the job not working out because you know what? All of this is temporary, but I have an eternal security 
that I know. And I know that Romans 8, 28 says that even if something bad is happening right now, that if I love God and I live according to the calling in, in my life, that his calling in my life, that all these things will work out together for my good. Even the stuff I don't enjoy and that I don't like, that it'll work out for my good some way. And even my mistakes and the things that I did to myself, somehow if I love God and I live according to the way he called me to live, that he's going to even work out my mistakes and my mess ups for my good. That's the kind of joy you can have when you say, you know what? The world can't do anything to me. The world can't do A mask can't take away my joy. A, a, a law can't take away my joy. Threats to my freedom can't take away my joy because my joy isn't dependent on any of those things. My joy is just dependent on the one who chose to come and to set me free and offer me full salvation. What kind of king is Jesus? He's a king who is for our good. He desires his people to flourish, to mature, and to prosper. Look at what the scripture says. It says, I will make a horn to sprout for David, and I will prepare to, uh, a lamp for, for my anointed. Um, another translation says that I will, uh, I will flourish the house of David. I will flourish the nation. I will, I will bring blessing on them. He is for our good. He is not just the hero to, who swoops in and gets us out of a tough spot. He saves us, and then he walks with us. He's not just Superman, comes in and gets you out of a tough spot and then flies away. No, he gets you out of that tough spot, and then he teaches you how to walk, and he teaches you how to live, and he's teach, he has a good plan for your life. And so it's not, like I said, it's not just about going to an altar one time and praying a, a, a prayer of forgiveness and then just going on about your business. It's about, no, going to that altar and then getting up and walking hand in hand with the master who has a good plan for you and saying, you know what, I'm not going anywhere that you don't want me to go because I know that you have better plans for me than I have for me. And that where I thought, think is a good idea, the scripture says what seems good to a man leads to destruction. But if I hold on to your hand, I know you'll take me to a place of safety and security. That's why when you're trying to figure out who you're going to marry, you need to make sure you're holding on to the hand of the master so that you don't make a wrong decision on that. You're trying to figure out what the next job is to take. You need to make sure you've got your hand on the master because he's for your good. Your own heart isn't always for your good, but he's always for your good. So keep your hand on the master's hand and he'll take you to a good place in your life where he'll provide you and take care of you. When you're going through the valley of the shadow of death and all hell is breaking loose, in your life and there's all kinds of terrible things going on and, and disaster and sickness and illness and difficulties you keep your hand on the master's hand because you don't know the way out of that mess but he knows the way out of that mess and so you hold on to him wherever he's going to go because he's the kind of king who's not sent some far off distant palace to, offering decrees and telling you what to do he's the kind of king that steps off the throne and says here hold my hand and I'll show you the way out and I'll show you where to go and I'll show you my good plan for your life come on y'all come on y'all he's for our good. Lastly, kind of king is he? He says, enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. He's the kind of king who defeats our enemies. Every other king employs an army to go out on the battlefield and die to protect the king. Every other king, that's how it works. The king doesn't go out on the battlefield. 
He pays peanuts to an army to go out and fight his battles for him. Not our king. He saw the battle with our spiritual enemy, Satan, that began way back when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. And even though he told them, you'll surely die if you sin and you disobey me. Who actually ended up dying that day? An animal had to die. He, he killed an animal so that Adam and Eve could be clothed with the skins of an animal. The mess we got ourselves into, we didn't die for. Someone else died for us. And God says, I created these people, and they've been in this cycle of, of sometimes being faithful and backsliding, and this cycle of, of letting uh, evil influences in their life and letting sin take over and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't say, you know what? They're just all going to have to die for their sin. Instead, he says, you know what? I'm going to get off this throne, and I'm going to pour all that I am into the body of a newborn baby because Jesus was fully God and fully man. He says, I'm going to live and withstand, the Bible says, every temptation that any man would have to go through. I'm going to live the life that any, and I'm going to show them that it's possible to live a life not enslaved to sin. And then... Because it's a wicked, evil world full of sin that can't tolerate true holiness. He ends up on a path that leads him to a cross. And they're on that mountainside called Golgotha, the place of the skull, Calvary. And there's dozens at least, maybe hundreds of people around this cross. As they nail Jesus' hands and his feet to a cross crown of thorns on his head as they mock him, as they beat him, as they stab him in the side. At any moment, the divinity in Christ, the God that was hanging there on that cross could have said, you know what? I'm not the one that's supposed to be up here, but every single one of these people on this hillside should be up here. Instead, he said, no, they're not strong enough to fight this enemy called sin and death and hell and the grave, but I am. So even though they deserve to be here, and remember a couple of weeks ago I told you we sing about cute little adorable baby Jesus laying in the manger and how perfect that baby is laying in the manger. Guess what? Jesus as a 33-year-old man was no less perfect than that perfect little baby laying in the manger. He had never been stained by sin. He had never made a mistake. He had never hurt anyone. He had never done anything wrong. He had never broken a law. He had never even had a bad thought. He was perfect in every way. He says, even though I don't deserve to be here. I know that if they're here and they die, they're not strong enough to defeat death. But I am. And so I will die for them in their place so that I can defeat their ultimate enemy, which isn't Satan. Your ultimate enemy is death. Satan's just the one that tries to get you to choose death instead of life. But your ultimate enemy is death. 
Isn't that what he told Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, if you sin, the consequences are death. What's Jesus come to do? To reverse what happened when sin entered the world. And so he says, they're not strong enough to defeat death, but I am, and so I'm going to defeat this enemy for them. He's the kind of king that doesn't send an army out onto the battlefield to die for him. He says, no, I'll die for the army. I'll die for the army. He's a different kind of king. I asked, uh, I heard this song this week. And I asked Pastor Katie if she would learn it this week. And y'all, after service, tell her thank you because I put this on her at the very last minute. But I asked her to learn this song because it, I heard it this week and I knew what I was getting ready to preach. And uh, I was like, I, we got to have this song. We got to have it. And I just want y'all to listen to it. The lyrics will be on the screen and, and maybe we can, once you kind of hear it a couple of, the chorus a couple of times, you can worship along with her. But um, I want this, her to just sing this song over us about the king, the king that we love and we serve, that we believe in. He's a king who is our provider, who feeds the hungry and cares for the poor, who saves us, who gives us perfect joy. He's a king who is for our good, and he's a king who defeats our enemies. Psalm 132. One more quote real quick. C.S. Lewis said, on the back of Satan's neck is a nail-scarred footprint that the enemy of our souls is defeated because Jesus went to a cross. Not only died, but he was resurrected for us. Listen to this song, and we'll worship here in a second.
worship the Lord. Let's worship the King. My King is known by grace. For the hope in His name and the power that saves. My King is known by the cross. My King is known by an empty grace. your hands just By worship the Lord worship the king of kings my king special touch from the